Hey again, travel bosses. I'm excited to bring you this week's sponsor, TripStreak, the smarter travel search. What I love about TripStreak is the ability to set your personal preferences to either have or avoid red-eye flights or have things like completely lie flat seats. So the next time you need to book a flight, check out tripstreak.com slash travel like a boss. Welcome to the Travel Like a Boss podcast, the radio show all about traveling like a boss by being your own boss. Stay tuned for weekly interviews featuring guests that have built their own online businesses. If you would like to have access to our entire back catalog, visit travellikeabosspodcast.com for instant access. And here's your host, Johnny SD. Hey guys, it's Johnny and welcome to episode 174 of the Travel Like a Boss podcast. I'm here with Brian David Crane. Hey Johnny, I'm good. How are you doing? Doing amazing. So Brian is the founder of Caller Smart and you've had a couple of big successful exits uh, with startups as well, but you've also been traveling for quite a few years, right? Yeah, I've been nomadic since 2014, but yeah, I had I sold my first company at 24 and uh, set out to do a around the world trip at 25 called 25 at 25 and it I wound up canceling at three countries, and I actually didn't enjoy it at the time. It's something we can talk about later in the podcast. But the the moral of that story was I was I, did, I had no money coming in. I had, had an exit, but didn't have uh, any cash flow coming in. I was just living off savings, and it was driving me nuts. I, I know exactly what you mean by that. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm reading a description about you. So you were a self-made millionaire by the time you're 30, and you've been traveling for a few years ever since. And actually, you are in Poland right now traveling. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah, Very yeah. Cool. Our, our software team is in Poland, so I'm, I'm, uh, I've been here since the beginning of August. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. So I, I definitely want to talk about what it's like being kind of a, a startup founder slash digital nomad slash entrepreneur slash traveler. But let's do a very quick backstory on how, how did you actually get started with all this? How, how did you make that first million? Yeah. Um, I, uh, like I said, I had, a, I had a recycling company in college, sold it. Started the trip around the world, canceled that trip. In the 2008 financial crisis, I uh, I went belly up and um, wound up moving out to Silicon Valley thanks to a friend of mine, kind of near where you were where you were born. From what I read on your bio about being from uh, San Francisco, mm-hmm. so I was in Palo Alto for three years and um, had the chance to work underneath some three pretty phenomenal mentors who who taught me how to build and uh and scale businesses online and so um uh, to date you know my my uh, digital marketing agency's done five of those companies launched five different multi-million dollar brands and probably the biggest one was uh, a, com- a brand called uh, archives.com that was bought by ancestry.com for 100 million two years after launch it's in the genealogy space so that that's uh, awesome that's amazing and yeah. you are only the second that was that was that, was, that, that was not my company let me be clear on that like okay. that was part, <laughs> i was part of the team like i want to be <laughs> part of the team that helped launch that so very cool um, well but, i hope you got a, a a nice chunk of that at least <laughs> i was i was well compensated yeah and it was fun too you learn a lot very cool. So you said that you were you were traveling, but you were just living off of savings. Can I ask, like, did you have over a million dollars in savings at that time? No, 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 no. Like I had, uh, no, no, no. But I mean, I was 24, right? Uh, to go back in the story, I mean, I was, I had six figures saved up, but it was also, you know, it was just going backwards, right? And I was, I was near where you were um, in Ukraine. I was actually in Romania at the time. And uh, I just, I packed up and went home. 
back to going back to the states. You know, it's a crazy feeling because I, I remember when I first started traveling, and I had like let's say four thousand uh, dollars from selling my car and traveling. I thought that was all the money in the world, and I didn't worry at all about that going down because I think it was a it was a small enough number where I figured, okay, if I if I lose it all, if I spend it all, and I'll just go back and get another job, and you know, I can save it back up. But when mm-hmm. you have a bigger amount, like you know, over over six figures, and you see that dropping, in I don't know if it's because we know how hard it is to make that amount of money, but just any time it drops, even though we still have you know plenty to to live off of, it just feels different. You're right. And the way I would describe it, I mean, you're right. The way I would describe it is uh, a guy I know calls it the stripper effect, and um, and what it is is that if you as a as a girl, if you're a dancer, you start making a lot of money. All of a sudden, it's very hard to go back to working a job where you're making six or seven dollars an hour, right? Like all of a sudden, your expectations are higher, and so it's it's a cost of when your income or what you have saved up goes up, is that you, your expectations also go up. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I guess you know, even as you know, as a guy, if you were a male dancer, or, <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever it was, I mean, uh, if you're used to having you know three hundred to a thousand dollar nights, um, especially in cash, and then all of a sudden you have to go, and even if you get a good job and you're making you know, let's say twenty dollars an hour, it mm-hmm. still just feels different. You're like, well, why would I do this? You know, why why don't I go back to doing Doing something else, yeah. And even if you can't yeah. do it anymore, even if that industry is no longer around, or even if you've, you know, I guess expired from it, I hate to put it in those terms, <laughs> but it just makes you feel like, well, you know, I, it, it almost makes it so you, you're not willing to, to work as, I don't want to say as hard anymore, but at least for that amount. You want to be like, you want the shortcut, I think is, 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 is what, what tends to be is like, how do I get there as fast as possible? Yeah, I guess that makes sense. And so the only other guest we've had on the show that, you know, has sold a company for a hundred million dollars was Sam Marks. That was episode one, 105. And for, you know, a couple of years after that, his big exit where he got, you know, I don't know, I don't know exactly how much, but let's say between 10 and 20 million dollars for his share. That's enough for him to travel, you know, forever. Yeah. But the fact that he said he would only see his count drop. And even, even if it was only dropping by a few thousand dollars a month. He just felt like he was going he was, backwards. Yeah, and yep. and he just couldn't do it. I mean, you, you you I know you're a fan of uh, Robert Kiyosaki's work and uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad, and it's like it's a doodad, right? Going backwards. It's not an asset. It's not paying you. It's like yeah, the doodad. No matter how you phrase it, you can have as much money as you want, it's still a doodad. It's going backwards. <laughs> I think that is why I took six months off. So about six months ago, I I guess officially retired or. Uh, unofficially retired and I enjoyed it for a few months and as of probably you know four or five months into it not only did I get bored but I also just felt like I was I don't want to see like a I don't want to say a loser yeah but I definitely I felt like I wasn't you know contributing or building anything or you know doing anything yeah yeah but I think that cuts to a phyllis I think it's a deep philosophical question of and it's one that I think is unanswered for a lot of people is like, what is the purpose? What is the purpose of life? And and a lot of times is it like, are you optimizing for pleasure? Cause you can have the six months off or are you optimizing for like, let's say to be the best version or to be the best, to be the best, let's say like, right. Nobody asks uh, Steph Curry or LeBron James, like if they're happy because they're out there pursuing 
you know, pursuing championships, trying to be the best that they can be. They have an off season. They have a downtime. They have the six months off. It's not six months in the case of the NBA, but they have a couple months off and then they get back to work. Right. Yeah. And so do you, do you feel like with, as a startup founder or as an entrepreneur, you follow that schedule or are you just working all the time? Um, yeah, I'm not, I mean, in my case, I work quite a bit. I think like you do. I mean, I was, I was reading where you do, you do the six months off, but then when you go back into, we'll call it grind mode, you're doing 40 to 50 hours a week. Um, yes, exactly. Uh, And normally for me, it's, it's two or three months on two or three months off. Yeah. So I tend to, I like working personally. I like what we're, I like what I'm doing and I like working. So it's more, I I on a day to day basis, finding balance. So for instance, like today, you know, I started my work day at about nine 30, worked till one, went to the gym, had a lunch, like a, a nice lunch outside before coming in to do this interview with you. And then when we get off the phone, I'll work for probably another two to three hours. And I've got a couple couple calls in the evening with folks back in the States. So that's balanced you know, to me, right? So what's funny is we are just one country away. You're, you're in Poland. I'm in Ukraine. And today, so far, we've pretty much done the exact same thing. <laughs> small world. Small, small world. And I, th- I would say to make the world even smaller is that before coming to Europe, I was in Southeast Asia. Um, I have a villa in uh, Bali. I know you're a fan of Thailand, but uh, I, were you in Thailand before coming to Ukraine or am I misreading things? I was actually in Bali. Oh, you were in Bali. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, we're, we're in Bali. Do you have your villa? In uh, Ubud. Okay. Yeah. Ubud, I, I like it. I almost feel kind of feels like um, a hippier version of Chiang Mai. Yeah. But I think for, for me getting things done, I, I, I still prefer Chiang Mai. Well, Chiang Mai is more digital nomad. Ubud's more newer, new age, I, I think. Yeah. So I actually saw uh, the talk you did at Ubud about digital nomads or kind of the, yeah, the, the, the pros and cons. Yeah, the downsides of uh, digital nomads. And it wasn't all the downsides. It was, you know, kind of the pros and cons and um, kind of the the ways to navigate being a digital nomad. Yeah. And I noticed just from the questions in the audience, you know, most, I don't know, you know, what everyone was doing there, but I mean, what, what they were building on building, cause most people, not everyone answered, but it didn't seem like most people were grinding and, you know, trying to build a big business. People were just, you know, there as like life coaches or yes. uh, doing whatever they're doing. Yes. Yeah. Did you run into that in Chiang Mai as well? You know, in Chiang Mai, not as much. There, there is um, Chiang Mai. It's funny that Chiang Mai has a bit of a, a hippie reputation because there is a big, like, vegan fruitarian festival that goes there for a few months of the year. Uh, lots of people are into like acro yoga and yoga, and there's Pai, which is kind of like a little hippie village. But in general, even when I hang out with, with the, that crowd, mm-hmm. which is actually a lot more integrated now with the the digital nomad scene mm-hmm. than it used to be, a lot of them are. You know, I don't want to say they're definitely not, you know, focused on just like entrepreneurship, but a lot of them are focused on kind of a blend of the two where they want to create, you know, sustainable products. They want to, they want to, you know, create like, let's say a bamboo, uh, sunglass brand or like a sustainable yoga mat brand, <laughs> but they're still building something and they're still building a real genuine product. And, you know, I'm all for that, you know, whether, you know, whatever it is in Bali, it seemed more like people just wanted to be, a health coach or a life coach without actually doing, you know, creating an actual product or even doing anything, doing anything successful first. I think interesting, interesting distinction. So in Chiang Mai it would be 
that they they're doing a, they're doing something tangible. Like at the end of the day, they'd be like they have a product that they can point to you, you to, and and in Bali would be more let's call it the inner work. It would be uh, <laughs> that, uh, from from a life coach or from a from a business coaching standpoint. Is that fair? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that's I mean that's one of the downsides in that talk that I was I mentioned was that I it's hard, especially in the co working spaces, when you meet someone to find out. To, to find out two things. Number one is that like, is the interest in you genuine? Is it friendship? Is it business? Are they viewing you as a client, as a potential customer? And there's a lot of mixed motives. And I actually, when I'm in Bali, I don't work from a co-working space. And a lot of times that was because it was just, it took a, it took a long time. It takes quite a bit of effort to, to filter out w- what people's intentions are. And, uh, and I just wasn't getting much done. So, and that's different than I, I was reading about your your experience in Ukraine trying to find a, a new co-working space. Like one of the things I was talking with a friend of mine about this recently that uh, in some of the higher priced locations, it's actually quite nice. And that I think is an opportunity for, for a co-working space is that um, they filter, you have to apply to be in the co-working space. So it's, it's a curated space. It's not just anybody who has the money to get in. They actually, you know, you have to have a product that lines up with, something and that uh, that like they, that you go through an interview process and they want to see that you know you have a business it's doing xyz and so when you're in the space and i was in one in new york that's that is a co-working space plus an incubator like i met some really high quality entrepreneurs through that space and that partially due, due to the fact it was in new york i think but also partially the fact that the cure there it was curated the people who actually got into the space and it made me want to go in because I was like, the people who are in here, they've passed some kind of litmus test as opposed to just Hubud or I don't know the big space in Chiang Mai. But it's like, do you have $5 or $10 and can you sit down at the desk and you're talking to somebody who, you know, they could be taking up a lot of your time and you're making quite a bit of money online. So, Yeah, I, I could definitely see the, the benefits of that. The only reason why I'm a bit hesitant to want want that is it yeah. almost kind of feels like you know, face control at a nightclub where they want to see, you know, like, and here's the thing is if there was, if there was, if in a place like New York where there's a lot of different co-working spaces, I think that's fine. Where if you don't like that place where they don't like you, just don't give them your business, go somewhere else. And if they're, if they're kind of just dicks about it and not, you know, you know, not genuinely being open-minded with interviewing people or yep. uh, with, with the application process, people just go somewhere else and, you know, capitalism will just shut them down. But in a place like in, let's say in Bali, where there's only one space or two spaces for the whole city and everybody goes there and either you're accepted or you're not, I, th- I think that's, that would be a bad, a bad situation because you don't want people to feel left out or have nowhere to go and not even have a, a chance to, to get started or that's just, fair. you know, even, you know, even if they just don't like you for whatever reason. Well, what's happening now in Bali, it's interesting, is there's actually private co-working spaces. There's groups that are sitting on top of some of the co-working spaces that are doing the curating that, that pitch almost like, a, you know, you're familiar with Dynamite Circle, but there's, there's groups that are doing like a project getaway type one month at this co-working space in Bali. But the people that you're working around in the co-working space have been, have been curated to a degree. So that's kind of a middle ground between the two. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. So... Overall, when when you're in Bali, you, you say you you're more in kind of maintenance mode, uh, and no, I'm working you... in Bali. Yeah, no, I mean it's uh, Bali's. I mean, no, I'm not in maintenance mode in Bali. It's more, I think the the work life balance in Southeast Asia and Bali is phenomenal, and um, you know everything from food super clean. The lifestyle is very healthy. It's fun. There's a bit of grit. It's you know like you can you can hire for things that. 
there's a fascination in the West with like, can I get on de- on demand food service or can I get on demand drivers or whatnot with Uber? And, and, and I think if you go to some a place like Thailand or, or Bali is that like, I, you know, you can hire a driver in Bali or you can hire someone in, uh, in the case of Indonesian, they call it a Pembantu, which is like a, a house lady who comes, you know, and she comes over three times a week um, and does food prep and picks up you know, picks up the laundry and whatnot. And every time she comes over, she charges $5 for that. Right. So it's, it, it, and you have a relationship with her. She's happy to do it. I mean, I, I, uh, the one that I'm thinking of, her name's Ketut and she's the sweetest woman. And, uh, so it's, it's just different as opposed to being like, can I plug it into my app on, uh, what is it? Yelp or whatnot and have it delivered to my doorstep is like, you don't have any relationship with the person who drops off the food. Okay. Yeah. That definitely makes sense. And I can definitely see that being good for, you know, either busy people or especially for families, if if they have kids and they want like a, I don't want to say like a living nanny, um, nanny or, or maid. Yeah. But you, you can have yeah. it if you want. Yeah. I mean, your quality, it's a lot of what you talk about, like where your quality of life is, um, your, your dollar just goes further. And I think that, I think there's probably four trends. I mean, the dollar is so strong in certain places that it's like, it's, that that's one of the trends that's driving people to, to, to be nomadic, but also is that the cost of living in the States in a place like San Francisco is, is abnormally high. It's abnormally high. Well, the most common question I get whenever I meet someone here in Ukraine, and probably the same in, in Poland, maybe to a lesser degree, is if you're from California or you're from the US, why are yeah. you here? Because they all want to get to California, right? <laughs> yeah. And I tell them, you know, California is an amazing place. I love it. And I'll probably go back and, and live there again in the future. But it's from a value perspective, and, and I think value is a really hard concept to, you know, to explain to people if, if they're not really, if that's not already their their top priority. But even though I can afford to live in California, it's I, I feel like I don't get the value for mm-hmm. it. You know, um, mm-hmm. you know, just from you know fifteen dollar you know lunches and three thousand dollar rent versus being out here where not only am I not paying California state income tax for not mm-hmm. living there, I'm also <laughs> just, you know, my my just cost of living is so much lower that I can follow the rich dad, poor dad model and buy investments instead of liabilities. Yeah, I think the question for you, like, that I come across with that is is that you, I don't know if you wind up lacking some of the brain rub or some of the mentorship that you would get in a place like the Bay Area in California. Um, and I think in your case, it's smart strategically. I don't know if this was part of your, your strategy initially, but with the podcast and interviewing folks is it gives you a chance to kind of get some of that rub. But I was in California earlier this year, um, for a conference in San Francisco and I was there for three or four days and I was, it's an awesome place to like tap into and stay mentally sharp and keep some, you know, connections that are in the business world who you're not going to bump into in Chiang Mai or in Ukraine warm that I would hesitate to say there's no value in going there. So one of the reasons why I have the podcast is because it forces me to sit down and have kind of deep, interesting conversations every okay. single week. And even though, and even in places like Chiang Mai, I, I do come across, you know, startup founders or um, people who have, you know, built, you know, or sold million dollar businesses. But a lot of times they're just traveling through. They're, they're there yeah. for, you know, vacation or they're there for a month or two to kind of, you know, unwind after a big project or after a big, a big launch or big sale. And if it wasn't for the podcast, we might still hang out. We might still go out for a drink or have dinner, but we never really sit down and, and go deep mm-hmm. on, you know, how they did it. Interesting. And having 
the podcast you know, not only has expected uh, me to people like you, but also even if we met in person, it would give us an excuse to talk yeah. a deeper. It's a good point. It's a good strategy. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it actually it, like that. That's actually honestly how it started was I just wanted an excuse to talk to to people. And in the beginning, it wasn't, you know, it, it was even today, I monetizing the podcast isn't isn't a big deal because it's not a big income income stream for me. And sometimes, to be honest, I'm busy doing other things or I just don't feel like going out looking for a guest that week or having, you know, go, going through yeah. the process. But I'm so glad I do. It's almost like going to the gym where you might not want to go, but you, you're always happy. Yeah, you, you feel did. better afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Smart. Smart. I love it. So okay. can we talk about <laughs> a couple of the, um, the things you mentioned in, in, in that talk? Uh, and, and we can, we can have a link to that below. It was a YouTube video about the downsides being a digital nomad, but you also wrote about it in Forbes. Are, are you a yeah, contributor yeah, there? I've written a couple of things that, uh, the the online edition of Forbes is published. One of them was about the, the hidden downsides of being a digital nomad. Another one was how to launch your business in Google and actually make it a success. And talk about that one as well if you're interested in like kind of tactics, more, more SEO tactics. But uh, but yeah, that uh, that digital nomad piece was uh, was in Forbes. Okay, you know what? Can we do a real quick synopsis of how to launch your <laughs> your your um, business on Google? Yeah. I'm- I think a lot of people are going to yeah, want the, to hear that. The, the, it's a it's a multi step process, but what the, the the steps look like this is that you first use PPC to find the keywords that are valuable to you. So once you then know what those uh, what those keywords are, you tend to go if you have a background in SEO, go look at the properties that rank for those particular keywords, and it's just like going to a nice neighborhood and cruising that neighborhood and looking for. Um, uh, the ugliest house in the nice neighborhood is that if you can buy it and you can fix it or you can buy it and you can flip that site into something that, uh, like let's say it has a lot of AdSense on it, that you would then rip out those AdSense blocks, plug in your own ads, use those ads to then drive to your your landing page or to your money property, and then you control you control the downstream real estate. So you're, you're using PPC to initially find out what you're willing to pay. You're going to look for properties that might either be you know, they're not optimized specifically. Like I love, I love finding sites that are, you know, they're on like old instances of WordPress. Sometimes they're on front page or they're built with Dreamweaver. I mean, there was a lot of hobbyist sites. Uh, this is in the genealogy space that I'm thinking of specifically that, um, that had a lot of traffic and that like you could, you could acquire, fix up, see a really nice bump from doing the fixes and then you owned the property and you could use that property to then promote and grow your, your e-commerce business or your uh, your money property. I love it. So you would just reach out to the owners of, of yeah. that website that, you know, they haven't, it looks like they haven't updated in a while or they just don't really care yeah. about it that much. Yeah, because you knew what it was worth, basically. Like when you used PPC initially, it was, um, you had a, you had a very good idea of like, okay, this is what, this is what it's worth in a, and the, and the formula would look like, okay, I'm paying this much in PPC and Google's taking half of it. So let's say it's 50 cents per click. Google's taking half of it. That means if this person is running AdSense, they're getting 25 cents per click. I know that there's roughly this amount of traffic around these keywords. The site tends to rank for, you know, this, this set of keywords. A lot of times you can get analytics code, either access to the site's analytics or they'll put analytics code on their website for you. So you can actually get hard, uh, hard numbers. And then what we used to do was we would do contracts first where we would plug in our own our own ads or our own search box in place of the AdSense block. And then once we had like, you know, statistically significant data, and I'm being very deep in the weeds here, but once you had statistically significant data on that particular site, you could make an offer to purchase it um, because you knew that 
instead of paying per month for all these visitors or all these clicks, like if you bought the site, optimized it a little bit, fixed a couple of things on it that it was number one is going to rank better. And number two is you didn't, you, you had an asset and you didn't need to keep paying for it. That's very cool. And what would you normally offer them? Like, like how many, like, like a 27 X monthly profit or buy them out. Right. We were paying like, um, a lot of times it was like probably like two years, two, two years revenue at their current revenue rate, but it would be a check up front. Right. So, you know, if you, if you have a site that's making eight grand a month, you know, and you offer somebody $180,000 for it, it's for a lot of people, it's hard to turn down. Yeah, especially if they haven't updated it in a while and then we, they, they moved yeah. on to something else. Yeah. I love it. You know, what's uh, awesome is that's pretty much what I what I do with my dropshipping stores. I've been on both sides where I've sold both my stores now, which, yeah. oh, thank you. And, you know, and it wasn't for a ton of money, but it was uh, about $120,000 total. And it was because, it was, you know, somebody was like, all right, well, you know, Johnny, you don't really care about your sites anymore. You moved on to doing other things. You seem a bit bored with it. You're not really updating, you're not optimizing, you're not adding more products. You know, I'll give you 27x monthly profits mm. for it. And I said, okay, mm. let's do that. But actually, as a- uh, closed, like they're, is, both parties are happy. You're happy with the exit. They're happy with the sites. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and exact, and they've done exactly what you do to to these stores. Is they've went in, they've, you know, like for example, one of the sites wasn't even mobile yep. optimized, and they just had their web developer go in, you know, and throw on a, a mobile optimized theme. All of a sudden, sales increase, and instead of taking twenty seven months for them to get back their yep. their investment, you know, their goal is to have it paid back after a year and then have a income producing yep. asset yep. after that. And it's smart for them. It's a good deal in both in both directions. And I think if you, you know, if you have if you have some cash, or in particular if you have uh, skills and you understand exactly what you just described right there, that it's 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 foolish not to line up properties like that um, because I think that uh, they're, they're like digital real estate. Yeah, and that's really smart. I actually I'm really glad that you brought that up because what I I used to do uh, in e-commerce was I would look for for stores that were on old like Yahoo mm-hmm. store formats and just kind of, you know, outdated, ha- hasn't been updated, but they're still running traffic. So, you know, you know, they're still mm-hmm. profitable. And, but I never thought to buy them out. I, I would just create a competitor and try to outrank them, but it was difficult to, to do. It was expensive. I didn't have any of the, of the organic SEO. And now thinking about it, like why? Why not just give them an offer and you know and just take it over and uh, optimize yeah. that store? Yeah, I mean they now that you have some cash, right? Yeah, yeah, I love it. Very good tip. Okay, Thanks. so I'm glad. I'm actually glad we we kind of went on that because I'm sure a lot of people and and this this is kind of what I like about the the podcast so much and why we don't have a a hard format is because you never know what little tangents are gonna really give a ton yeah. of value. Yeah, we'll pull on enough threads. One of them. Uh... One of them turns out to be pretty interesting, huh? I love it. So I'm I'm curious, like, what actually are the downsides of being a digital nomad, in your opinion? Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's. I would say that one of them is that, and I I think this is probably an issue with how digital being a digital nomad is presented. But I think that there is uh, that one of the downsides that is at least not talked about enough is that it takes a tremendous amount of self discipline to actually make it work. And that there, there's a perception of, you know, you're going to, as soon as you get on the road, it's all going to be easy. There is, there's probably more things that go wrong when you're actually traveling, um, whether you suffer from road fatigue, you know, the bed is too hard, you can't sleep well at night, 
you can't find a co-working space, the internet goes in and out, that uh, that just grind you down. And those are those are I think those are really under you know under discussed or underrepresented. And then you have this issue of what I would call uh, perception and envy, which is this isn't necessarily the case for you, but if you're a if you're a freelancer or if you're working remotely, which is what a lot of the folks at the the Hubu talk what, that was the position they were in, is that they they straddle this line of if you are posting pictures on social media of you sitting at a beach with a computer up on your lap or you are it's Tuesday at two o'clock and you're on the top of you know the the Annapurna base camp in Nepal and you have clients who are expecting work from you or you have a boss who's looking at you to be like where where is this or is this deliverable as good as it could be you really run the risk of putting your um, your income stream at uh, at the mercy of somebody else's envy. So, so you have to walk a very thin line, and that's why a lot of the times I think in Bali with some of the life coaching stuff is, I dislike it. I dislike the life coaching because what it is is that like they're selling people on a particular like this is amazing da 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 da. Oh, why don't you give me money so you can also do this, and I'm going to use the money that you just gave me to keep funding this this perception and this dream and telling people how easy it is. Right. And I think it's, I think it's a bit dis- disingenuous. So that's one of the downsides. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. And I never even really thought about the, the, from the freelance point of view, because I think part of the reason why I wanted to become an entrepreneur is because I didn't want to deal with, you know, having a boss uh, looking over my shoulder and asking yeah. what I was doing, because I know that when I work, I'm working hard, but I wanted to be able to do, to do it on my terms. And but I can absolutely see that if I even even if I hired a freelancer and I was paying them a set rate, you know, wage or um, yeah. a salary, and I saw them just you know mucking about, I would assume either they could have done the work better, they could have done it faster, they could have done yeah. more work. But I, I I do think that that's you know a big argument on why people should have performance based pay and not just fixed salaries. Or be entrepreneurs, right? <laughs> or be entrepreneurs, yeah. <laughs> not be a freelancer. I mean. Yeah, but the performance base, I mean, sometimes it's hard. Not everything fits into the performance model. One of the things I think is a freelancer that's incredibly difficult, and you've seen this if you're in um, if you're in Southeast Asia, is that there's a hunger. Like we would hire for CallerSmart. We hired uh, the designer for CallerSmart who did both the website and the app. He was uh, he, he graduated from uh, the one of the top design schools in Thailand. CallerSmart was one of the projects that he worked on in his portfolio. He then used that portfolio to work his way up to uh, a design agency in New York. And now he's actually been hired by LinkedIn and he's in the Bay Area. And when we hired him in Thailand, so three-step process there, but when we hired him in Thailand, he was $9 an hour. And and his designs were on par two years out from being anybody in the Valley who – you know, it's like, it's like there's, there's I, the, the moral of the story is there's like a war on for talent. And if you're a freelancer and you're doing stuff that is easily replicable or stuff that is um, where you have like clients, I think a lot of times it's like you've got to get out of that uh, deliverable client ecosystem because you're getting chomped at metaphorically from people from lower wage countries or they're hungrier than you. Yeah. And that definitely makes sense. And you know, but it's also a good a uh, good thing on our side yeah, to find those uh, people as entrepreneurs. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, and and uh, so yeah, you're right. I mean, that's uh, so great. <laughs> the other the other downsides. You're familiar with Gary Vaynerchuk, yeah? 
Gary Vee. Yeah. So yep. he talks a lot about hustle, hustle hard, hard uh, <laughs> that the market is the um, is the ultimate litmus test. It's not about, you know, like your skin color, your gender, where you come from. X, Y, Z is like the market. If you're not good enough, like the market will tell you. And I, he has a phrase or he quoted somebody when he's talking about it, becoming so good that they can't ignore you. And uh, and I think that a lot of times with the folks that I see who are digital nomads is they don't build sustainable momentum. They, they're not somewhere long enough that they get into habits and routines that make it so that they can become so good that they can't be ignored or so good that they can you know win in the marketplace. And so you wind up with like in your story where, you know, you can quit and go live off savings until you figure it out, you know, when you get to Southeast Asia, or if you want to pre-plan and follow someone else's success, like a lot of what Vaynerchuk talks about or Gary Vee talks about is, I think, becoming so good that they can't ignore you probably before you get on the road. That's not applicable for everybody, but I think to a large degree, like making sure that you have a parachute before you jump out of the plane, which means becoming so good that they can't ignore you, which means you need to have sustainable momentum before you get on the flight to go to let's call it Southeast Asia or Eastern Europe. You know, and I think that definitely makes sense. Uh, my buddy that I'm traveling with, Chris, he did exactly that, where he pre-planned wanting to be location-dependent and being an yeah. entrepreneur. So he kept his day job. He worked on his business on the side or on weekends. And by the time he got out here, he, he already had you know more than enough in income to, to sustain himself and you know be able to That's grow smart. that. Smart. And I, I, and for the long t- longest time, I would tell people to do exactly that because logically yeah. that makes sense. But then people would call me out and say, well, you didn't do that, Johnny. You sold your car and just went and came yeah. out here and you mucked about for four years until you figured it out. And looking back, I think even though logically I tell people to, you know, to do, to do, build a, their, their business on nights and weekends, there's a lot of people like me who just, if we're comfortable, you know, at home, it was never happen. Well, yeah, I mean, you were talking about odds. Like you put, you forced yourself into that situation to be able to like light the fire underneath you, in a sense, right? Yeah, and you know, and you're right. Like um, some people, you know, th- that might be the worst thing. They might, they might just burn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was, I think, playing playing the odds. I mean, there was um, to do what your friend Chris did is uh, it gives you better. It gives you a better shot at making uh, making it sustainable or making it work over the long term. And you're a success story, and you're probably also an outlier, right? In the in 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 the grand scheme of things, would you agree with that, or you think I'm off base saying that? No, I, I think you're absolutely correct, and I think that's another reason why I have this podcast. Is so, you know, that way people can hear the stories of how other people have done it. Because I, I never want people to, to just say, okay, well, let me be exactly like Johnny. Let me first, you know, um, get in the ring and, and learn Muay Thai. And then let me be a dive master for a few years. And then let me get into e-commerce because that might not be the path. And that probably isn't the path for most it people. It creates an epic story, huh? <laughs> it was, yeah, it was fun. <laughs> I mean, there was t- – talking about odds and, and you know, your – let's call it – I don't want to call it your path versus Chris's path because it makes it too personal. But there, there is – there was a, uh, a professor from Harvard named uh, Beth Altringer who came to Hubud, the co-working space in Bali, and she she was fascinated by the digital nomad movement, and she wanted to get hard data around it. And so she started to give out these surveys that were they were blind. You could fill them out. You didn't have to give your name. You didn't have to give any identifiable information. But she asked questions like, how much do you have in savings? How much are you earning on a monthly basis? How long have you been on the road? And what she found, she I think she collected – 
somewhere over a thousand of these surveys during the period that she was at Hubu. So she had a pretty good sample size. And what she found from the surveys was that it was basically like 80% of the people were living actually on less than a thousand bucks a month and going backwards, like in terms of their savings. And really you could say that their skills were going backwards as well. So I would, the way I phrase it is those probably 80% of them should, should have been, um, or at least a portion of that 80% should have been on a vacation as opposed to trying to be digital, to be nomadic long-term. And then the other 20%, what she found was out of the, out of the 20%, 10, 10% of that or half of it, excuse me, was, uh, um, had in demand skills already and had already proven themselves. So they had a source of income where they had like, um, they were in the top 1% at a tech firm or something where they, they were already capable of being remote. And then the other half of that 20% bucket was, was entrepreneurs, was people who own their own business and were making, you know, four or five figures a month. Yeah, and I can definitely see those, those numbers working. And I actually, I really liked when you had mentioned just now, but also in your talk about how a lot of digital nomads should just be tourists, yeah. or they should just just yeah. be on vacation. Yeah, I mean, you've seen this. Is that like it because it creates? You know, we're both Americans, but we're in Europe. Is that like the Europeans have this nice concept of they take a vacation? You know, <laughs> maybe not in Ukraine, not so much in Poland, but Western Europe, they take a vacation. They go, you know, they go. August to a large degree, things shut down in, uh, um, in Western Europe. And so I see people that, you know, I'm like, why don't, you know, why don't you leave your laptop at home? Because it creates stress of trying to do both, right? You're not really on vacation. You're not really working. And then you're self-shaming along the way because you're in a co-working space, but it's not moving the way you want to, or you have some, you know, you see some people who are like Tuesday at two o'clock, they're going to visit the water you know you're never probably going to be uh, there and to see that waterfall again or maybe there's a cute guy or a cute girl and you're interested in them. And so it's like you're like, well, I should be working, but I'm going to go. And then, you you know, the scooter breaks down or you get sidetracked and you want to go try some new food. And by the end of the day, like, the you know, number one, the day has gone. Number two is you were supposed to be working, quote unquote. And number three is, is that you feel bad about it. You didn't really enjoy it because you were supposed to be working mentally. And that, and yet now you're in this position of, well, you got your laptop with you, so you might as well, you know, plug in at 11 o'clock at night and try to get some work done. And it creates a, to me, it's a, yeah. it's a bad balance. Like, just go on vacation, just enjoy it. Well, I, I definitely th- think you're right. Where if you, especially if you have, let's say, two weeks or a month, you know, whenever someone comes to, to Chiang Mai or something and they say that they're there for two weeks, I'm like, what are you doing? Just, you know, just yeah. go have fun. Just go, go to the waterfall, go scuba diving, go enjoy yourself. I think the reason why some people, you know, come with their laptops and, and want to be, you know, take a nomadic vacation is because, you know, they, they want to feel like they're, they're there for something, you know, th- that they're, they're not just there to, to have mm-hmm. fun. And for me personally, when I go on vacation, what I like doing, you know, like, let's say I'm only going to be there somewhere for a week or two. If I just do touristy things, you know, every single day, I get exhausted by the second or third day. And my my idea of resting isn't you know laying in the hotel and watching TV all day. Is I actually really like sitting in a coffee shop or even a co working space for a day, and blogging or uploading photos or you know video video editing or doing something that you know luck you know I'm I'm very fortunate that part of my income is from my my blog and my YouTube you know my YouTube channel and not everybody has that you know. Um, but those but, three things that you just named are all creative. Photos, yeah. videos, and I, blogging, like those are all creative, right? That touches a part of you. It's not. And it recharges yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I, I, I cut you off, but I, th- I think that like, 
I'm not advocate. I want to be. I'm not advocating that they leave their laptop at home if it's London or SF or whatnot. I mean, you're welcome to bring it and uh, and 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 be able to tap in and do the um, the editing or putting the photos online. But it's more just be honest with yourself about if you actually want to be. Do you want to be doing this long term, right? And if you don't, like, look at it as more. Uh, um, it's a creative endeavor. Yeah, and I think you know you really. Uh, hit, hit the nail on the head there when you mentioned creative because I think the reason why I enjoy doing those things is because it's a creative outlet that actually, you know, like recharges me more than it does drain me. But if I had to, if let's say I was building another e-commerce store and on my, you know, on my third day of being on vacation, I had to upload a hundred products or I had to customize some, some checkout code or something that would drain me more and I'll be more mm-hmm. exhausted. And pull you out of the vacation too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, I guess unless, you know, someone is, is making a living, but, you know, is making a living doing something creative, then they probably shouldn't be at a coworking space. But I mean, I guess there's always something creative you can do. I mean, even, you know, let's say I'm, I'm assuming like Caller Smart has, has a blog or it has creative elements um, to it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, my, I mean, my day to day, like the creative stuff is, it's fun. It recharges me like what you're talking about. And, um, the, the managerial stuff, it tends to, it tends to suck my energy. One of the things that I had to do, took me a long time to get here was actually separate out and run totally different, uh, email addresses so a personal email address. And then two, two distinct business, uh, email inboxes. And I mean, they're totally separate inboxes. I can't see one from the other because I just needed to be able to separate some of the creative stuff and both in the business, but also like just writing to friends, um, or, I don't know. Like what I, what I found was that like a lot of the times, like when I was really out of balance and I felt stressed, it was like, even when I would go into my personal inbox, I would see business stuff in there and you can't really, you know, you get into this mentality of, Oh, you should just not check email at all for three or five days or seven days. And it's like, that's, I I can't, I mean, I don't want to do that. Number one, but number two is I just found it was like, it didn't give me any kind of balance. Cause when, when I got back in there after five or seven days, I felt totally overwhelmed and I was like, I got to get through all this stuff now. Yeah. And and that's actually a great hack. I actually do the same thing. I have my personal Gmail account and I have, you know, one for income boss and I have one for Johnny Mm -hmm. FD. And actually on my personal Facebook, whenever someone asks me any business related question, even Mm -hmm. if it's a friend, I just have them email. I said, "Oh, can you ask me this yep. in email?" And I'll give them my that email address. And same thing to WhatsApp or yep. iMessage. And then it sits there in the business inbox. And you, when you're in business mode, then you can get to it. Yeah. Yeah. So great yeah. tip. That's I like one that. thing. I mean, actually, at my, I think you probably find this interesting. In my villa in Bali, uh, they're building a second building onto it, and it just finished actually today. And what it is is it's a it's an office, and it's again the similar distinction of the same reason you go to a co-working space as opposed to, you know, just working from home is I think you need to have that separation. And some of the people I meet who are like, I'm working from home and I just work from my bed or I work from this like little table that I have in my bedroom. I'm like, I think it, I think it's bad mentally for you. I think you you don't, you need this, you need the, you need the break and you need the separation between the two. It comes back into like vacation versus being a digital nomad at a high level. I'm, I'm like, there's, let's say there's seasons of life and that um, it's not natural and not normal to always be in springtime. Sometimes you have a winter, sometimes you have a summer, sometimes you have a fall. And like, whether it's the separation of the email inboxes, whether it's, you know, having a separation between where you work and where you sleep or where you work and where you play or your, your, your day-to-day balance, like it's a big theme. It's one of the, it's one of the reasons actually I'm back in Bali. 
Yeah, I actually, I definitely agree with that. And and for me, I'm the same way where I only do work at a co-working space or at a coffee mm-hmm. shop outside of the apartment. I've actually never opened my laptop in my bedroom before uh, at the Airbnb I've been staying <laughs> at. But at the same time, Chris, who I'm traveling with, he's the exact opposite where he hates co-working spaces. You know, whenever he goes, he feels unproductive. He feels like it's a, a waste of his time to even walk mm-hmm. there. And he loves, like, he literally loves working from mm-hmm. his bed. And he's productive doing that. But at the same time, different you know, strokes for different folks. But it comes, yeah. But at the same time, he gets burnt out, and then that's why you know, at ten or eleven at night, he's like, I have to get out of the house, let's go to a bar and and, and drink because I've been here all day. Yeah, yeah. So it's an interesting. So, so you're in an interesting position because you're going to the co-working space. You come back. You're ready to 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 decompress or be on downtime, and he's ready to go out at that point, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you know, I think part of it is kind of just finding what what works for you specifically, yeah. you know. And it sounds like we're we're kind of on the on the same page. Uh I'm I'm curious like how how many months of the year do you normally spend in Bali? Um how often are you in the US and how often are you in Yeah, Poland? I do. I tend to look at I do 3 to 4 months in each location. And uh and that's actually one of the things that I talked about in uh in the Hubu talk is just that I think it's so much healthier to to get a base, whether it's, you know, for, for a period of time, I lived in Hong Kong and, uh, you know, that would be the base and was there for four months and then could from Bali or from Hong Kong go out and have adventures. You know, have you been to Hong Kong? Uh, no, but Sam, my, my buddy Sam Marks, he, he loves it there probably for those same it's reasons. Awesome, it's a jump off point, right? You can get yeah, amazing yeah. airport. Anyways, but like, you know, having that base, so three or four months there and then being able to, you know, hop onto a flight, short flight and go for, you know, three or four days somewhere and then come back, I think is, uh, um, to me is the recipe that's worked. And also I, I do this with some of my closest friends. So, um, I've been fortunate to have entrepreneur friends similar to what you have where uh, they're interested in the same things. We want to go to the same places. And uh, so it's another way to actually get some of that brain rub The you know, cause you have people that are my, my friend Chad says swinging from swing, swinging in the, in the same strike zone, you know, and then you want to, and you live with them. Like in Bali, we had a, you know, a three bedroom house last year down in uh, Changu and um, all three of the guys, myself included, were entrepreneurs, we all had, you know, sizable businesses and we could talk about these things and it also deals with some of the loneliness i think is like you have a routine you're in a space with with friends that you know you're going to see in the future and, and you can then go out and explore from that base yeah and i, I think on that loneliness factor i think that's a huge sign of being a uh, huge side effect of being a digital nomad mm-hmm. and being so independent where it's it's kind of just normal where even if you are traveling with a friend and you what you know one of you says oh I want to go to the beach for you know for a month and the other one's like well you know I want to go to Hong mm-hmm. Kong for a month and it's almost normal just to, instead of compromising and saying oh let's go here you know first and then thereafter it's usually like okay yep. see ya <laughs> yep. and when you're you know when you separate I'm you know I'm, it's fun for a little bit but it really does not only it. it it gets lonely, but also you get that brain drain where you're not around other people who are building a business or, you know, thinking creatively and, you know, you're just hanging out with backpackers yep. or people yep. on vacation. And I think the, I think one, in addition to the loneliness and the brain drain is that it's tiring to constantly retell your story. I don't know if you've suffered from that, but like every time you meet someone new, you're starting from zero, right? And there's a part of this where you're, you know, like, they're like, so Johnny, who are you? And you're like, I, oh, you know, I was born in San Francisco, X, Y, Z, like I want, you know, I, I, and, and you just, you start telling the same story over and over again. And there's just fatigue in it where you're like, I wish 
you want to build memories of people that you know you're going to see a year from now, three years from now, five years from now. And some it's it's hard to do. <laughs> it's hard to do. I think it's a downside. Yeah, and I used to suffer from that a lot. I, th- I think the nice thing is now that I'm all over the internet, <laughs> you know, I can just tell people to read my About Me page. Yeah, and then they're you already coming into the call. Yeah, but what's actually cool about that is I actually don't really like talking about myself. I and even if I, you know, I meet somebody new, I I want to hear about them, and I generally like hearing about other people's yeah. stories. So it's it's a it's actually nice if they already know mine, so then I can focus on theirs. Interesting. Another that's a it's another strategy, huh? Yeah, yeah, clever, clever. I mean, I don't. There you have, go. Have, have, so you actually, you, have you? Sorry, yeah. sorry. Have you recruited your friend Sam or Chris? Like these are guys that uh, you knew from back in Cali or at some point, and you recruited them into uh, either recruited them into being an entrepreneur or recruited them into coming to travel with you. So Sam, I actually met out in Chiang Mai. He actually lived, lived happened to live in my yeah. building, but Chris, I absolutely recruited him. Uh, he. You know, we've been really good friends back in California for since university, so long, you know, 10 plus years. And I was bugging him since, you know, really, you know, even before I actually started making money online, I just said, hey, you should just come out. And he was so, you know, logical and rational. <laughs> he said, you know, I'm not going to come out until I have a business. And it literally took, you know, I think two years after that for me to figure it out. And then I, I remember the the very same month i started making money online with my e-commerce store i happened to be back in the us and i said chris you have to do this and i and i showed him my store i showed him you know shopify i showed him kind of the, the back end how it all worked he spent the next year or two doing it himself and then once he got his uh, his business at a very kind of high level that's when that's when like he finally came yeah. out how did you guys handle i always find this interesting between friends when you're when you're opening the kimono to, you know, a friend and you start talking about business ideas, did you guys work when he launched his business? Were you guys working together or was it totally separate and you're just, how did that work? How was that conversation? So in the beginning, we were, our, the first e-commerce store that, that we built together, we, we did as, as a kind of okay. a partnership, but then the product that we were selling was making, let's say, a couple hundred bucks a month, and it just wasn't it, it just wasn't going. Um, viable enough. It wasn't going anywhere, and he decided to just start kind of venturing out and adding. You know, he basically just he took our small little idea and he he created his own you know huge business with hundreds of thousands of products. So I really had nothing to do with that big store anymore. So I mean, you know, part of me was kind of like. You know, hey, that would have been nice if you kind of included me with the with the other one. But at the same time, I you know I also knew grand total I spent you know three or four days uh, helping with that, and he spent two years, you know, ninety oh, yeah. days or a year, two years building it himself. So that was completely his. That's I I think you handled it well. <laughs> I think you handled it well. I've had fr- I've had friends lose. You know, they've uh, they've they've fallen out. I haven't personally experienced this, but I've watched friends fall out over that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. And, you know, I guess you can almost see it from, from two ways, you know. I think from his point of view, he's like, you know, you know, what are you talking about? I, like, you left mm-hmm. after three days back to mm-hmm. Thailand and I built this company myself. And then from my point of view, if I, you know, was so inclined, I could have been like, well, you know, you never would have thought of this. If yeah, it wasn't for I me, showed you, you the know? way, right? Here's the path, in a sense. Yeah, but at the end of the day, I think who, whoever actually does the work is, you know, is the one that actually deserves yeah. the credit or deserves the, yeah, the, the income. Yeah, the executor. Yeah. And plus, yeah. You, I, mean, I mean, I think in your case, you get to keep a friend, which is, uh, you know, most important. And number two is now he's with you in uh, Ukraine, right? 
Yeah. And because, you know, you know, he built his store and he was able to kind of figure out his, his parts. We were able to have our separate businesses, but still help each other out. Man, that's a success story. Yeah, I love it. And I definitely encourage everyone to try to, you know, either recruit your your existing friends or when you make new friends, really try to travel with them. And that way, you're not alone. You're not a solo nomad that you can kind of have, you know, like-minded people to to hang out with, to work with, and to grow with. Yeah, because that's one of the one of the points that was in the in the in the talk about the downsides is that you lack mentorship. You don't. You, I mean, you just don't get around. You you wind up you wind up not finding out, not learning from um, somebody who you know that you would like to emulate, because I think there's a lot to be said for how do I how do I say this? Where you you learn from that you. I, I use the analogy this way: is that like if you you decide that you want to learn how to shoot baskets, and uh, um, you find an NBA player who's amazing at shooting baskets, well, you might also find out that he's you know he's unfaithful to his wife, his finances are a train wreck, you know he whatever he treats his mom horribly or whatever other metrics you're measuring uh, that person by, but he's amazing at shooting baskets, and you don't really want him as a mentor, but you want him to learn a particular skill. And so I think that um, the, the inability to do that, in your case, you're using the podcast to, to, uh, to get some of the brain rub. But like a lot of the times when you're on the road and you're moving around is you just don't have enough time around the other person to figure out, are they the person that you just want to learn how to shoot baskets from? Or are they the person who you want to try to absorb, you know, like a, a life view or a holistic view of, uh, of all things in their life? Yeah. I, I can definitely say that it definitely makes sense. And, you know, as far as having mentors kind of on, on the, the road, I think it's nice that nowadays we can kind of have a lot of virtual mentorship through listening to podcasts, through listening to audiobooks, um, through reading, you know, reading books or taking online courses, all things that, that I do on a regular yeah. basis. And I also try to meet people in person, not only while traveling, but, you know, going to conferences, you know, at least a, a few times a year to, to really have that that immersive experience. Well, I would love, what conferences are you going to? If you don't mind me asking. So I'm, I'm going to my first Tony Robbins event awesome. this year. And, you know, you know, like not really for, for business, but more for, you know, self growth yeah. and, uh, personal development. I have been invited to the affiliate world conferences a lot, but it, it really has nothing to do with, with my business. So even though I like the people and I almost kind of go just for the parties, it's not really the, the type of, you know, the type of network <laughs> that, that helps me with my business. And then I have my conference that I host every year called the Nomad Summit. And that's every year in, in January in uh, Chiang Mai. Cool. And, you know, not only do I get hosted, but, you know, I'm also an attendee. So I get to meet all the people. I get to learn from all the people and hang out with them as well. That's the best when you're the connector. Shoot. Yeah. Wow, I got to learn from you. You got, I mean, this is like, you've done it well between the podcast and the, uh, and the conference. I think those are two, they're two things I would let, I would love to incorporate. That's part of the reason I've started personally to go on the podcast is I've I enjoy it and you get to meet some really fascinating uh, folks like and having this conversation. But also, you know, when you're the connector and you're the people bringing, bringing different people together like you're doing in Chiang Mai, I think it's it's very powerful. Yeah, I love it. And I'm, I'm so glad to, to meet you as well. So uh, hopefully we're, we're going to hang out in person mm -hmm. soon. Poland, you know, Poland, Poland if Ukraine not, is, uh, is quite far I'll t <laughs> still. Uh, but uh, you're coming through Bali, definitely. I would love to. I would love to hang out. I, I, I know we're winding down, but I'll just say as a last plug, did you ever listen to Hardcore History from uh, Dan Carlin? Yep. Big fan of that. And uh, Wrath of Khans was definitely my favorite mm -hmm. episode. Have you listened to his uh, his Ghosts of the uh, Ostfront? About 
No, I haven't heard okay. that unit. It's it takes place in in uh, Ukraine. It's about the the Nazi invasion of Russia. Wow. It's okay. Right. Terrific. Well, Give you. A, I'll get that on yeah, that now. Odessa and Kiev, and it's uh, it's pretty fascinating. So if you got some downtime, you're chopping vegetables or whatnot. <laughs> yeah, hardcore history. I think is a great podcast. To listen to on plane rides or long train rides, where you know you have a few hours, you just want to get immersed in something. Yeah. Yeah. Zone out. Yeah. I love it. So if people want to reach out to you, Brian, how can yeah. they find you? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. My personal website is com. You can email me, uh, brian at uh, callersmart, or I'm on Twitter. My handle is Brian David Crane. And the reason the reason I go by my full name on all of these places is uh, coming from the South and the U.S. is that they had the hardest time spelling my name. It used to be Brian instead of Brian, and uh, it got misspelled <laughs> as uh, brain, and it was... Growing up, I was called Brain Crane all the time. So, oh, that's funny. That's yeah. actually a good name, though. I like it. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> so, you know, so, right. so for one person who goes by, most of my friends call me BDC, but like from, you know, you got Johnny FD and BDC. It's a bunch of, I like bunch it. A bunch we'll, of initials bouncing around. We'll, we'll call you BDC. I like that. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much for being on the show. And if you guys want to check out his app, it's callersmart.com. And thanks again. See you you. guys all next week. Bye-bye. All right. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank everyone who's taken the time to leave these amazing five-star reviews of the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to the show. You guys are the reason why I continue to get these great guests. And today's guest was, was, you know, really, really inspiring. BDC, big shout out to you. Also, big thank you to our sponsor, Tripstreak. The next time you guys need to fl- book a flight out to Poland, out to Bali, or out to Ukraine, wherever you, you want to book a flight, you want to do it on your terms with your options, go to tripstreak.com slash travel like a boss. I'll see all of you next week. Stay bossy. Thank you for listening to the Travel Like a Boss podcast. If you want to hear more, including the bonus, how to choose the perfect niche episode, join our mailing list at travellikeabosspodcast.com. See you next week. And remember, if you want to travel like a boss, you need to be your own boss. So start your online business today and start living the lifestyle you've always dreamed of.